We've got a special podcast fitting for an ultramarathoner. Two plus hours with Jim Walmsley, the new 50-mile world record holder set at the Hoka Project Carbon X event. We talk pretty much everything about Jim's career. Olympic marathon trials, giving a giant F you to the running community, his high school career, his college career, getting dismissed from the Air Force, manning the nuclear silos, adversity, and dreaming big. Who are the greatest ultramarathoners of all time? What are the greatest ultra races of all time? Hey, we can't tell you everything. You need to listen to the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Hoka One One. They're leading our exploration of the ultramarathon through the month of May. You can win the new Project Carbon X shoe, which is out as of now, May 15th, for order on HokaOne.com. Here you go. Jim's Walmsley next. All right, we're joined by a very special guest, Jim Walmsley, an Air Force graduate, but more important than that, the new 50-mile world record slash best holder set at the Hoka Project Carbon X event. Jim is essentially the, well, arguably the top ultramarathoner in the world, course record holder at Western States and a ton of other races, JFK, Lake Sonoma, about 15 other races, but Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hopefully you can educate us about the ultra world. First of all, congratulations on the world record slash best. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a fun race and uh, happy to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you feeling? You've had about 10 days to recover. And the last time I talked to you, you said you were going to be moving and doing all this other stuff. Like, yeah. have you moved? Where are you living? Are you recovered? Uh, I haven't moved yet. Most of it's been cleaning and we kind of have an overlap on the two houses. So we're taking our time and gradually doing it this month, but more or less lots of house projects before moving in. So been keeping busy, but keeping running. Uh, I think I ran three times the week after my 50 mile run. And then yesterday was kind of my first like 11 mile run back and uh, legs feel good now. Um, But it's one of those things when you're getting back in the first week, you got to just be most cautious about avoiding injuries as you took a couple days off and things tend to tighten up. When I was preparing for this, I know now to look at your Strava account. So I saw your back running again. Yeah, I think uh, yesterday I labeled it as Western States day one. So uh, every step has a purpose now, which uh, is pretty powerful. Hey, now that you're a world record holder, you know, you should have like a moving crew take care of everything. You're, <laughs> you're famous. You're famous. Yeah, right. I, I wish. Uh, yeah, no, no, not quite there yet. <laughs> So looking back at the race, you know, it's pretty interesting because you were targeting multiple things. You're one 50 mile world record to the hundred K world record. And also if you're going to do that, you're going to try to break it by nine minutes and go sub six hours. I think doing all three of those things at once, especially in that heat were very difficult. So you got the 50 mile record. Are you pleased with things still? I mean, like with 10 days to reflect, are are any impressions different than they were 10 days ago? Like how, how do you view the weekend? I would say it was an overall really successful weekend. I think main goals were to try to set a record. It wasn't necessarily distinguished which one. Sub six hour pace for the 100K would have been the nicest because it puts you in route for world records on everything. Um, So that would be pretty cool, but uh, that didn't happen. But the 50 mile world record um, is pretty awesome. It's got a lot of history behind it. Big positives to that. but I'd say there's things I could have done better. 
I should have done better in the race and executed better on race day. So there's really big positives, but still plenty to build off of and learn and do better next time. I think unless you somehow figured out how to make it rain or get about 15 degrees colder. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the day wasn't bad. I mean, the morning was so perfect. The first three hours, I think you can't argue with at all. Um, The fourth hour being fair. And then the last hour to two of the six. So for me, three hours that day uh, started to definitely warm up. You you shouldn't necessarily be having to pour water on yourself on a record setting day, uh, ideally. Um, But that's how things worked out. And that was the day I was given. So it's kind of, that's part of ultra running. And you take those cards and you, you play them as best you can. The one thing I learned, I mean, that was my first ultra. And from this whole sort of exploration of the ultra sponsored by Hoka, I'm learning is that just so much can happen. There's just so many more variables in ultra running. And I don't know, I think it makes it maybe a bit more interesting for the neophyte for sure, just because I don't know. I feel like a lot of for sure track races kind of who's going to win. I I would say it's way more interesting. I think everything is almost always left up for debate. So everybody can still have their opinion and not necessarily be right or wrong. And then ultra running is a lot about how you did it and kind of the legend or folklore of the story behind that race. Like every year at a specific race has its own story behind it that might've made it incredible. Or even though it's a slower time, it's like, but this one was like truly the best effort and and stuff like that. So um, it's all kind of part of the sport and makes it more, more uh, maybe interactive for, for most people to talk about. I think there's like videos on, well, actually I haven't seen one in your Western States win. I'm sure it exists, but I watched two videos on 2016 when you're away crushing course record and wandered off course and then the next year when you vomited and had to drop (laughs) out i don't think i've ever seen a video on like la kipchoge's whatever 2000 you know even his world record marathon and they'll probably make one on that one but a lot of these races there isn't the folklore and some of it i almost feel like it's kind of like a bit like a mythology and that sort of stuff almost like yeah louis zamperini you know who he is the guy from the uh Fortunately, I don't. Yeah, yeah, you have to tell me. He was like the. They made the movie. Um, oh gosh, Sh- shouldn't be showing my ignorance here. I just quote the guy. I'm googling Louis right now. Unbroken. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a more recent. Angelina Jolie. Yeah. So yeah, Louis Zamperini. Unbroken. The movie Unbroken was about him, and then 5K. I think world record holder and. But when you would read these stories about him written up in the newspaper, it's like, Louis dug deep and he just was so much. Then his whole story on top of it being a POW and all that stuff was crazy. Definitely has that ultra running folklore to it for sure. Yeah. And just even that one race in California, the Project X event, and the shoes are dropping today, everyone. I don't, I'm sure we probably will have mentioned this on the podcast, but we can get to that. I didn't even know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so special bonus, Jim, on the day the shoe drops. I feel like Kipchoge has a shoe and you have a shoe. How many other runners can say that? Well, I'd say neither one of us truly have a shoe. Carl Metzler actually truly has a shoe called the Speed Goat, so, which is his nickname. But uh, yeah, may, maybe someday uh, Kipchoge and I can get shoes after us. Yeah, but the event, you know, was designed for the shoe launch, but just even that, right? Like, I mean, Hideaki Yamauchi 
wins the hundred K and I guess I'm sure there's some ultra purists are like, Hey, that guy's the champion of the day, right? Like that's the guy we should be celebrating. Yeah. I mean, in general, I think with multiple objectives for this, it's kind of cool how things worked out, especially with a few of the Japanese athletes coming over um, for Hideki to pull off like the win in the hundred K. I felt like there were individual small victories where it brought together a really good camaraderie um, amongst the athletes probably competing out there. And it was kind of fun and happy to celebrate with them afterwards. I like the vibe of the event. and So a really cool part about uh, the Hoka Project Carbon X is it really got to throw a kickback to Hoka got their start in ultra running. And by putting on an ultra event is kind of their heritage and their grassroots. So I think that was really important. But with this as well, um, I would say a road ultra like this is kind of a glimpse of like that folklore magic of what you get at something like Western States or UTMB or Comrades. Like there's so much more build up to it. And especially uh, where everyone's announced in the race and you get to talk it up because people love the debate before the race more than the race itself. So but this one really did touch base on kind of grassroots of ultra running. I mean, people, we could debate the marketing, but it was only announced three days before. So there wasn't much debate beforehand, but it was still like, I thought it was cool that people could watch it and the buzz. And obviously you got the record. And then there was just, there's interesting storylines, right? Like when people move up in distance, you never know what's going to happen. And Tyler Andrews, you know, he was going for it. So let's talk about that for a minute. He really did go for it. I think, Cause he's also on Strava and when you look at his training, um, he's not your typical road marathoner. Um, he's, he's done up to like 160, 200 mile weeks and he's a really big fan of the double. Uh, so he'll run twice a day and, um, he was really getting into speed workouts before this. And I mean, I'm sure he would tell you he's probably in the best shape of his life for this event. Um, and he has a PR, I think of 215 for the marathon. So, um, definitely pretty respectable in that discipline. And, uh, he's got the world record of 50 K on the track, I think in like 246, I want to say. So, um, but he lacked the experience in the hundred K and going in further ultras and what's going to come later in the race. And yeah, it kind of proved a little bit that ultra running is at least slightly different and it's, difficult to just drop yourself in and have immediate success yeah when he's there at the press conference like you guys were all friendly but were you thinking like man i know what's coming to you or what what were you thinking before the race i think i very much respected him as an athlete and i mean i would talk to guys in flag and most people were more casual of like uh i think he's gonna struggle in like 100k like in even 50 miles is like i don't think i just don't see it and me personally, like getting psyched up for the race, it's like, and then especially even how the race played out, um, I got a, like, I let him go. Cause I knew he was going to want to push the pace early is kind of what he talked about before the race. And I only learned that maybe like a week before the race, because I think his, he was very confident in how well his training was and the fitness that he had going on. So, um, he wanted to push the pace. And for me, it's like, we're already like, under world record pace under six hour pace like (laughs) hold the reins like it's coming don't worry like it's a world record for a reason because 
like things get very difficult very fast and what was easy is now impossible so um that's a little more experience with it but um kind of uh, enough to respect of like i need to start closing this gap to tyler because um what if he does stick it and what if he does just run away with it and it's one of those classic uh let's run debates of like what happens when you stick a better marathoner in there and it's like all right we tried a 215 guy now let's plug a 210 guy in there now let's plug a 208 guy now let's plug a 205 guy in there and like do they just keep falling domino after domino or does one finally stick it or what's interesting about tyler though is like i was saying he gets really high mileage that i think gives him a much better chance at converting it faster than a marathoner that's 100 to 140 miles a week. Um, but something I did in my training was more so than anyone else, Pat Reagan's probably the next to do this because we both have Western states uh, in almost six weeks now. Um, keeping more vertical running and trail running into my routine to get ready for the next race because we tend to kind of cycle things in and out of races and roll one race right into another training block to get ready. Um, so I think that paid off a lot in the strength of how I was able to hold on mistakes and sometimes too fast of a pace in the middle miles for me um, and and hold on enough to still get the 50-mile the world record and, and even finish the race. I mean, I kind of took my little breather afterwards, but things kind of felt – and went along fine for the, the 12 miles after the 50 mile um, without really pushing things at all. Yeah, it's weird. I think because you're, you're so good and you have this very good track background. And I, I was like, oh, he's going to get the record. But then kind of once you, not really bonk, but once you start slowing down, you probably still had 10 miles to go almost for the record. I mean, there's a lot of people probably don't make it there. I think we were all sitting there having a party having some drinks at the finish line and everyone's like all excited and just kind of assuming, Oh, Jim's going to crush everything. And then you slow down a little bit and I'm like, Hey, is he in trouble? And they're like, no, 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 he's, he's fine. Well, based off my, I mean, so as a trail runner, I shouldn't have made this mistake, but I was kind of looking into my GPS uh, distance too much. And as a trail runner, you know, like the distance is never as advertised. It can always be longer or shorter where on a road, you really expect it to be true. And, I think I was looking into that too much and between not taking tangents enough or going off the course a little bit to use the restroom and coming back on, um, little things like that add up to distance. And I actually had like 0.35 further than what I thought. So I thought I was going to be more in a comfortable, like, uh, 448, 449 range for the world record. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like getting closer and closer. I'm like, I don't see it. I know I'm not like I've done the loop multiple times. I know I got like a ways to go and it's like, Oh crap. And things kind of became like, all right, we got to like ratchet it down this last like half quarter mile sort of thing that I just wasn't expecting. Um, but you start gaming it a little bit because yeah, it's a world record. It hurts. It's not supposed to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be easy. And I think I was also paying back some stupid middle miles, but yeah. Yeah, you were miles under 5.30 and I think six-hour pace is 5.48. I mean, that's nuts. It, in retrospect, was stupid. So before the race, I got asked, um, like everybody got asked, what is your motto and stuff? And like I got the, it was my turn to say, and I just had one word of just caution. And I think I lived up to that 
for the first 20 miles, like my plan, I wanted to. But then I, the pacers started dropping out and I started finding a, my own rhythm to kind of loosen my legs up a bit. And I probably went like somewhere between 10 to 15 miles clicking anywhere from low 520s to 535. And then all of a sudden around mile 38, um, it's like, uh oh, that that probably wasn't the best idea and temperatures are starting to warm up. I think I should have started increasing my, my liquid um, as I was like my nutrition plan. I think I should have had a plan to increase uh, liquids throughout the race. And I, I didn't really compensate liquid wise for the hotter temperatures and the, the later stages of the race. And then, yeah, things get hard very quick uh, when you kind of cross that line a little bit and, who knows, maybe I would have saved a, a really good 100K time if I maintained that motto of caution, 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 wait. And there's no reason I should have been clicking anything under 540 at this point. And it, yeah, that I would say in retrospect, that's probably the biggest disappointment that I feel like I made preventable mistakes. But when you say some of that, I don't know, that's some of who you are, maybe even some of your appeal is like, you're not afraid to sort of set really big records or just go for it and we may not end up pretty all the time but i think a lot of people respect it I, yeah i definitely have eaten my words more times than once and uh but i also say that's what gets me most excited about training and pushing myself is kind of having that um eye on me and what is he gonna do and it's like well i better train my ass off because everybody is watching and i just said i was gonna do this so um yeah, it kind of sets you up for huge success or huge failure. And it makes it fun and exciting both to watch and for me as a athlete to train for. Yeah. And then next time, I think you'll be better prepared. I mean, yeah, I think this was absolutely like invaluable experience that I can take forward into a future 100k, but also uh, a future comrades as well. And um, unfortunately, more road ultras like my I would say my passion and Heart is definitely with some trail ultras, but I feel like I have time in my career to do that. And the road ultra stuff, uh, the clock is ticking. So I feel like I need to get the best performances out of myself while I'm still a little bit younger and uh, can click those splits more comfortably. Yep. Real quick, one thing on Hideaki. He claims to me that he only runs like 500 kilometers a month. Yeah, I, I've heard that. Do you think that's possible? I don't know. Um, I, I think the mentality of Japanese runners plays really well to an ultra. Um, from the stories of like, they have these 1K loops around the perimeter of a park and they run single file and there's just this track edged on the, like something like that. That's just so mind numbing and disciplined and to go out and just jog it every day. Um, I think can play very powerfully into ultras. Um, and then in addition, uh, He's very patient. Uh, he ran with better caution. He still had huge positive splits like all of us, um, except for maybe Pat Reagan. He probably ran the most cautiously, but um, at some point there's a risk reward to caution versus risking something. And Hideki definitely uh, was a bit more risky and he ended up beating Pat Reagan by 13, 14 minutes. So um that pays off, but comparatively, he also ran much more cautiously than myself or Tyler Andrews, who who didn't really, neither one of us put together a, a complete 100K on that day. 
So the, he's got really good attributes that can translate to ultras, and it's not just all running. To do it on like 100K a week, yeah, it's pretty insane. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable myself training that way, um, but I, I've always been a higher mileage guy. Yeah, I was going to sort of first talk about your, I don't know, rest of the season and then go back to your career. But since we're talking about training, let's get into that a little bit because I asked the other Let's Run guys what they wanted to hear. And John Galt, surprisingly, I'm surprised. He wanted to know about your training. So hey, how much on average would you see your, say you run? And does that really change for the event? I don't know if you're doing 100K roads. Is that different from a Western States versus a UTMB? Or sort of you're on your feet the same amount of time per week. The mileage may change uh, things change drastically. So I would say with my training, I try to race like about every other month, kind of a, a bigger race and things will cycle up and down with that between taper and then build back up. So you get these dips and these training blocks. And I think it's important to build the training blocks continuously together without too, too much rest, but you can definitely vary the intensity of the training blocks to kind of pace yourself to not burn out. And I also say like, a lot of ultra runners, but myself included, and a lot of us, like uh, our group, uh, the Coconino Cowboys and Flagstaff, are self-coached. And it's one of those intuition things that you just have to kind of learn, in my opinion, not to overdo it. Sometimes I do, and sometimes they do, and other people do. But the more you can be in tune with that, the better, I think, because being healthy and logging miles is one of the most powerful things. And I mean, I think even yourself and let's run are huge advocates of uh long slow distance or just mileage and and i don't think anyone's arguing of season after season being healthy of like that's obviously going to build on to uh reaching new levels for yourself for me personally things definitely change a lot with different goals um but things don't necessarily specialize until uh, about six weeks or so before the race so you bring a lot of fitness into each block, but then the specificity can change drastically. So for the half marathon in January, um, I was getting on the track more regularly than I had than I've ever done since graduating college in 2012, um, which was really fun to start with. And then all of a sudden, very quickly fizzled out of like, I don't like this routine. Um, it's not as interesting and as exciting for me. And kind of that road workout passion fizzled pretty quickly, which worries me a little bit, a lot of bit about doing a bigger marathon block that might be four months long. So then things transition very quickly to uh, a 50 mile race out in Hong Kong um, and immediately got back onto the trails and onto the canyon and things had to adjust slow and, but getting in that climbing to strengthen the legs right back up was very important to me. And then Western States will be probably a really fun, it's generally a really fun combination of climbing, running fast, fast long runs. I would say a faster rolling long run is one of the big staples of Western, Western States training. And that'll be like a 20 to 26 mile run, uh, typically like a, a dirt road. Um, so something around here like A1 Mountain, Heart Prairie, 151 Road, uh, 222. Um, Flagstaff has tons of options for that. Um, and then something like uh, UTMB is going to involve actually more hiking. Uh, it's different muscles, different energy systems. 
So I get up to Colorado up in the San Juan area and do a lot more higher altitude hiking, um, typically with my race pack or extra gear to make it a bit heavier. And yeah, we get out the the wizard sticks and start um, using some poles to hike around really high mountains. Um, typically, I try to keep the hiking above tree line. And then if it's below tree line, I, I try to be running it. Um, and then time on feet, the more mountainous stuff you're doing and more technical training, uh, technical trails, your time's just going to skyrocket just because it's not running on the roads anymore. What's an easy effort on a trail might be, uh, in Flagstaff, it could very well be eight to nine minute per mile, but that's probably a six thirty to seven thirty effort wise on in the urban trail system around town. So it's, it's going to vary for people, but time on feet just starts exploding. And it's really important for especially the longer grindier ultras. And then I guess for bigger races, I like getting to probably between 130 to 150 miles a week. I also log my vertical feet climbed and typically it's going to be um, equal to uh, vertical feet descended. But uh, I log everything on Strava online and basically everything's public for everyone to learn what I'm doing and try to copy it or take in what might benefit them. I think that's something unusual that I've done that people really appreciate is the transparency to my training. Um, so Jonathan Galt can, like anyone else, go on to Strava and look up my Strava and everything's on there. Um, You're not afraid of giving away your secrets? No, because one of the things I've learned is uh, I can handle a really big workload and I don't get hurt very much or yeah i've avoided injuries very well um and so far like people have tried copying my training and typically they keep up for a little while and then they have something happen and all of a sudden like that wasn't a very good plan was it um but then i also have some of my best friends here in flagstaff that do very similar stuff and have had really great success uh translating that into their ultra trail running um and i think in general, we have a very healthy and uh, fun group that pushes each other and also really embraces true kind of ultra running and answering that why. And I don't know, I, I think we've kind of almost even compared it to a college team of, uh, we, we have a really great group of guys here in Flagstaff. So I log vertical feet. And then when I'm doing something for like UTMB or there's still many races that are much harder than UTMB, arguably like Wasatch 100, Bighorn 100, Hard Rock 100 here in the States are some of the more famous ones. Um, Diagonal de Fou, I've uh, started that race once and that one's out by Madagascar out in the Indian Ocean. It's hot, it's humid, and it's the most like continuously technical trail I've ever been on. I, I can't believe they run that race because it's like the technicality on that trail just never quits. Um, so there's just always a risk of biffing it at any moment. Um, and then, so, so time on feet will start to get logged at that point. And then that's how I log it. Um, other ultra runners, I think Killian, Jernay, he logs mostly, I think, feet climbed. Um, and then I think Courtney DeWalter is all about time. Um, and both of those are really powerful, um, especially time for Courtney of how she translates things into such long ultras and, grindy stuff uh it's it's just a really powerful skill to hone in on in longer ultras killing is extremely difficult to beat and really steep technical stuff um 
that's kind of his niche. So, but I, I would say I would have a, a good balance of runnable, difficult trail running training, but coming from a road track background sort of thing, um, I still log miles first. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm amazed. I probably should have started off saying you've qualified for the Olympic trials of the 104 half marathon because the more I learn about this, I'm sort of amazed you could do that while doing these other things. They're just so very different. And I mean, to run that pace, what's that, 450 something? Whereas for 100K, you're running 550 essentially. Yeah, I think um, it's just such a different skill set. It's pretty amazing. I think you guys had Sage Candy on the other week, but um, his biggest thing that he harps on is just uh, like effic- variable efficiency. And I think that's a great way to put it. Um, but just learning to be efficient at different paces. Because once like Courtney's got a different um, efficiency pace than I do, and probably the slower you can make your efficiency pace, a lot of times the more useful it is in the longer, harder ultras. Um, because a faster guy will move to a little slower pace to make it that distance. And all of a sudden they're like not used to it. They're using different muscles and things start to hurt very early. And they're like, what is going on? I'm only 25 miles in and I'm only doing like eight minute miles. And it's like, well, welcome to ultra running. You got 75 more miles to go and you can pick it up if you like, but you're going to pay that back even harder. Yeah. I know the training varies from race to race, but one thing I discovered in this whole thing is also you're like a little track geek and, Maybe because you just yourself coach, you're also more aware of the training. But I heard you say something once you were discussing like whether most people, these are more road runners and track runners, whether they put their like sort of tempo run earlier in the week and then their intervals later in the week. Like you'd sort of examine that. So I feel like nothing is beyond your purvey. You study a lot of it. I, I've liked some of Sweat Elites, or yes, I think it's Sweat Elite. They've published some of the stuff and with track, there's this like whole like, um, yeah, hide your cards. I'm doing something different that nobody else is doing. And I think the best track runners all know that like they're all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same workouts. It's not a big deal. Um, but whether you're Matt Sensuitz or Elliot Kipchoge or Jenny Simpson, like for the most – well, let's not throw Elliot in there. Uh, um, but Galen Rupp, I mean – they're going to be doing some staple workouts that are very similar to each other. Right. I mean, I think some people, right. The coach can put it together better. And I thought my coach was a genius. And I think one thing you also said is like, you know, a two ten guy can outsmart a two Oh five guy, something along those lines. Like the most talented guy doesn't necessarily win. It's how you sort of put it together and you got to be ready on the day, right? Like they don't just award the medal to who has the best PR. Yeah. Probably one of the coolest points about this point in my career is, I say I'm not doing anything new at each ultra I'm signing up for, but the ability to replicate a good performance is its own skill. And um, I think that shows like something that you've, you've actually dialed something in is when you're able to replicate a good performance and, and then even in ultra trail running to replicate something, but also adjust it for a different circumstances that, and, and I say it's like, ultra trail running is almost probably more pure and beautiful because there's not a scientific approach to it as much. It's more of an back to that intuition side and kind of, I would say more artful with how you feel you can train and where you need to put more emphasis on right now 
And what skills are you bringing into this block that you can use better for the race? Or um, what have you been leaving out that you need to improve before the next race? And a lot of times that for myself, it's when I drop down into races of incorporating um, a couple track workouts, but it doesn't take a whole lot typically for an ultra to harness that efficiency at a, at a decent cadence and pace. Yeah, you talked about replicating the performance, and I always feel like the top people in more you know traditional running, they almost always win. They almost always have good performances. And I'm sure there's times they're sick, their training hasn't gone well, but they sort of know how to get the best. And I feel like it sounds like you're, you sort of figured that out. I mean, the ultras, more stuff can go wrong, right? You can Your food can go down at Western States. It's too high. You push it more. I mean, there's more variables because the one thing with most traditional road races is they're held in pretty good weather. And that's definitely not the case in ultra running. Oh yeah. We, we run throughout the whole day. And I think one of the parts about our sport is that we embrace the adversity of the, the hard parts of the day and the hotter it can be, the more interesting it's going to be, or the colder it's, it is, the more interesting or the more rugged and mountainous. It just adds more variability of like, well, they're doing great now, but they still got a long way to go. And, um, yeah, I think as we saw in the 50 mile, like, things could be clicking for 40 miles and then all of a sudden like things start to tighten up a little bit and that last 10 can be a just different ball game than anything else in the rest of the race. And with the training, last kind of training question, I feel like most more traditional running is like two workouts a week of some extent, you know, maybe a tempo run, something, some intervals or something, and then a long run. I know maybe yours changes to events, but do you sort of stick to that mindset of sort of three harder efforts and then an easy day or do you can you not do the vertical climb that you could do on a harder day you just go slower or is is it more it's five days a week that are sort of difficult or i think you need to throw that mentality away so one of the most important things you can do about ultra running i think is fully commit to it so that's probably one of the hardest things for elite runners and on road or track to maybe do to translate for ultra running is kind of forget a lot of what you know in the structure of it and it needs to be more about the overall process week to week or month to month um, as opposed to breaking down the week i would say like for most of us we we use that kind of rolly long run um, typically a saturday or sunday still in line with traditional uh road guys but um that's probably one of our more workout oriented runs and then other than that one of the best parts about a trail is like well nobody else really knows exactly what that trail's like so if you go jog something at a 10 minute pace and it's like well yeah but i climbed four thousand feet today like or i mean if you can go under a 10 minute pace out of south kaibab that's an insane pace so um most people are very much above 12 minute pace climbing out of the canyon and but that's a super hard effort where, um, so, so you kind of got to feel your efforts with the trail, but a trail kind of disguises like easy, hard days. And you got to take advantage when you're feeling good. And when you're feeling tired, you need to also respect that. And it might be a couple of days of just jogging out there, but you get the mileage, you get the grinding, you get the vertical, and that's equally as beneficial in, in trail running as it is, uh, getting in that faster upbeat stuff too. What's one piece of advice you would give to other runners? It depends on the runner. Uh, consistency is key. Um, 
just like any running, I think making a plan to get out the door every day is probably the most important thing. And especially like I came from, I I ran in college uh, and then I went active duty air force and kind of, I had to balance trying to figure out like a lot of post collegiates, like I'm not quite fast enough. Well, I had a career in like missile silos up in Montana, which was its own uh, problem with a professional track career. But I, I didn't have the PRs to necessarily like just keep at it on the track. And it's like, well, what am I going to train for and do this and that? And the biggest thing was like off days started becoming contagious um, is kind of a saying that I made for it. So just one of the most important things, especially as I knew I was going to be transitioning out of the military was making a plan to get out the door and run every day. And that consistency is the most important part. And that doesn't mean you don't take off days. There's still days where like I get just super slammed and tired and it's like, all right, this is a day I need to take off. And that's totally fine. And it's worth it. But I personally am not a fan of planned off days. I think you should take the um, spontaneous off day when you really need it most. Yeah. One of the announcers at the Carbon X event was Julie Hinner, your college coach. And it's pretty interesting to talk to her because she made it sound like you're kind of difficult to coach in college. But <laughs> the one thing she was saying was that like, you would just push, 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 do more, more, more. And she kind of had this battle with you. And then finally, I think one summer she said she just let you she's like all right jim forget it you know you're not listening to me do what you want to do this summer and she said you came back in like the sickest shape and if ncaa cross country was that first week of school you'd have been like top 20. yeah unfortunately i'm also very known for for burning out uh pretty quickly in seasons i think the structure of a whole season really like wears me down um one of the best parts about ultra running is there's not necessarily like a season that you're competing through you get to kind of peak for an event and then peak for an event and they're spread out enough where I'm able to just kind of hit one race and then rest, recover, train, hit a race. So there's, I really like the ebbs and flows that come with uh, the seasons of ultra running where like a collegiate season of racing all indoors and then racing all outdoors and then summer and then cross country and repeat. Um, yeah, I didn't quite ever figure that out great, I think. But it sounds like, I mean, in some ways you kind of have because started doing your own thing and figuring out what works for you. Whereas I feel like so many people, maybe if they listen to the coach exactly, but the coach isn't going to understand your body exactly like you are. You got to kind of figure it out. Well, I, I was telling you earlier, I think one of the things that I was frustrated with in college was Julie kept me a lower mileage in college than I was at in high school, but there's lots of reasons for it. And I think it was the best call because adjusting to altitude, workouts at altitude, uh, a service academy life, um, lot, just lots of stresses. It was a really good life learning time of learning how to balance stress more so than more, 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 especially running related. But then philosophically, um, she was she's a probably mindseted, uh, more like a true 800 meter runner and loves the hard, fast workouts. Um, and those were the hardest workouts for me that I would pay back the most in training. And yeah, I, I found very early in high school that I very much like the, the longer, bigger mileage. And I, I draw a lot of strength off of that training that plays out very well for me. And so philosophically, I think um, we didn't always align perfectly. Um, but I learned uh, like so much from her and that different opinion. And uh, it was a pretty rewarding process in college and probably have a faster mile time than I would 
otherwise. Yeah, 401 on the DMR, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So split and then official 404 for an open mile. Did I get you the respect on Let's Run? I don't know. No, 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 no. There's always another bar and it's like, well, you didn't break four. And then like, well, you ran 359, but you're you're still nowhere near the top guys in the US. And then, I mean, there's a couple guys even like under 350 right now. So it's like, eh, there's always another one. And I think that's one of the most important parts of having a career is always adjusting your goals as you go. Like, and that's something I learned in high school. Of Like, you got to have a foresight to adjust your goals afterwards and that's when it's going to keep you motivated and keep you going and yeah so there's always higher goals to set for see i think the typical let's runners conflicted with you because you are a 401 guy uh, sub 14 5k guy so they're like oh yeah he's gonna take it to the ultra people but then at the same time they're like oh ultras we you know we can't respect that too much i was kind of surprised when mike mcmanus said you're one of the more polarizing people and i'm like oh i feel like jim's very very popular and let's run for an ultra because i feel like people can i don't know the you, you we feel like you're one of us and you're an ultra runner and so maybe people are kind of more intrigued they can kind of relate to what you do and then also they see like hey this guy he doesn't have to do ultras i feel like the the, the implication is some other guys couldn't run the shorter stuff so that's why they moved to ultras it may not be totally fair but that's sort of the assumption. Whereas Julie told me, she said, yeah, I told Jim he could be an 820 steepler. And he's like, oh, why would I want to be that? That's not the best. And I'm like, well, maybe you could make an Olympic team. Is there any truth to that? Um, it, Olympic team on the steeple or? Yeah, you think you, you think you could have been an 820 steepler? Yeah, I think I could have ran 820 in the steeple. My steeple form was absolutely terrible. I said it was kind of like watching some guy bounce over a steeple and just turn a steeplechase into the hardest fart like you've ever seen like I was just terrible at it and I, I ended up running it five times and like I guess first time I broke nine minutes second time I did it at the conference meet in one conference um, against like 840 something steeple guys that had been steepling and then uh, luckily for me though it was at the Air Force Academy at pretty high altitude which I kind of say like there's not many, there's NAU, Wyoming and Air Force Academy that are at that altitude in D1 and competing at 7,000 feet. I kind of jokingly said, uh, it's like shooting fish in a barrel because you can come up from 5,000 feet and it's just not the same. And then my second one was at regionals down in Texas and qualified for nationals with like a 851. And then the semifinals, I ran 841. Um, and then Two days later, tried to come back um, in Des Moines and race again. And I think the gorilla finally jumped on my back at that point. And uh, I don't even know what I ran. But yeah, not much steeple experience. Um, but I was really fit my senior year. Um, I was able to hop in the 10K for what I consider like my only 10K in college and ran 2908 um, or only 10K ever really for a time. And then was running really tactically good 5Ks, but the way graduation stuff worked out, um, President Obama was coming to our graduation and that was something that I didn't want to miss as a life experience and the way things worked out. I, I probably should have done the 10K, but that was the day after graduation and being a military academy, we stand all day for graduation. And then, um, so that's not quite ideal. Uh, so I ended up going with the steeplechase instead and just going for it. Well, that's cool. I think so many Let's Runners get so caught up in running. They, oh, I got to do the 10K. I can't see the president speak at my graduation. 
Yeah, it's one of those, I don't know. I think I started, yeah, I had missed out on a lot of NCAs um, that I felt like I sh- was fit enough and fast enough, but didn't quite get it done. Um, and it, it just turned into caring less and just saying, I don't care what event it is, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way before I graduate to, to get to NCAs. And yeah, it ended up being through the steeplechase and yeah, it would have been cool to do the 10 K. I think I want to say Jared Ward was in my only 10 K. Um, but I definitely got my butt kicked by Steven Sambu in that race. And then I think one of the Mexican runner, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it was a Barrios, but I think there's a couple Barrios out there, but got quite a few scalps in that 10 K, which was kind of cool. And you beat Jared Ward in college, right? Let's just get that out there. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, that was the, I want to say that was the 10K. But I think I graduated that year. So he's older than me, but I graduated that year. He had another year. And I think he really started to blossom the next year in college and then obviously developed a lot as a professional on the roads after college. All right. Before we talk whether you can beat Jared Ward at the Olympic trials next year, let's real quickly rewind. I want to go through your sort of like, we kind of did college, but sort of what are your first memories of running, running in high school, that sort of stuff? I mean, you're very good running in high school, making footlockers, but like, did you run as a kid before high school? How'd you start running? That sort of thing. We had field day once a year in elementary school. Uh, it would go up to an 800. Uh, I was usually pretty good at that, but not, I, I grew up playing soccer. Um, so that's probably where the fitness stuff comes in. I think in middle school, we had like a month long track program that I did seventh, eighth grade, but I would also say didn't start running until my freshman year of high school where a fellow soccer friend that was a year older um, talked me into coming out for the cross country team. And for, we were in a really competitive soccer program. So that was kind of an extreme no, no to start doing a sport that much. But um, my soccer coaches were pretty encouraging of it because they're like, you're, you're one of the best like fitness runners we have on the team or well, probably the best. And I think this is only going to complement it even more so. So yeah, it'd be great as a second sport. Just soccer is still your first sport. And I really enjoyed the community and friends and um, the social aspect of uh, being on a high school sports team, as opposed to a club soccer team that basically I could go to school every day and no one knows that I'm even an athlete. And because it's just outside of school sports. So um, I, I ended up getting a group of friends on the cross country team and really choosing that part of it to my sophomore year, end up, uh, just going into running. I was getting hurt too much, uh, along with, it was just a time in my life where I was growing still. So freshman, sophomore year, it was the first time like kind of dealing with injuries. So my parents were like, Oh, Jim, it's time to choose sports. Like you're just starting to break and you can't do both sports. And I think they were fully expecting me just to quit running and do soccer and kind of threw my parents a curveball when um, I decided to do running instead. And then I guess in high school, this is probably relevant um, and kind of gets some people really excited because it's one of these things of like, who's one of the runners that you started looking up to first and probably you admire most. And uh, still I think is one of the most fascinating stories is, uh, Kenny Cormier, um, being from Arizona, I got to read my freshman year about Kenny Cormier in the newspaper and kind of his story of coming out of nowhere, big mileage and just outworking everybody to become a footlocker and national champ. 
I think that really set my sights uh, and goals in high school a lot. It was just that lucky part of being a freshman in Arizona, reading about this guy that just started dominating out of Douglas High School. Yeah, so Kenny was like footwalker champion. It looks like just Googling this 2004, and he was known for just banging out the miles. Yeah, and even at Arkansas, he was just known as like... So, yeah, I, I say... I, I like that story is uh, throwing his name out there. and So he was a senior when you were a freshman? Yeah. Oh, interesting. The sort of influences that people have. And also on your, on your high school teammate was a Western, he ran Western States, right? As Yeah. So another senior when I was a freshman, James Bonet, um, he was the youngest uh, Western States finisher ever at the time. And up until a year or two ago. Um, but they don't allow people under 18 to run Western States basically. And he was like 18 and whatever, like very young 18 year old. And um, basically was considered this ultra running phenom because people didn't get into ultra running at a younger age. And it was very, and even still sometimes controversial about how, well, definitely, um, we've seen even younger kids start getting into ultra running and it's just like how young is too young for ultra running and going that far and pushing your body that way. Um, but at the time he was very cutting edge and he got picked up by North face, uh, to run ultras like right out of high school. Um, cause he finished 14th as an 18 year old. And, uh, that was just so unheard of. He's being sponsored. I small sponsorship, but North face was, um, and still is a very big influential uh, brand in ultra running, which kind of kicks on the the dirtbag side of ultra running and real grassroots stuff of like Scott Jurek and Dusty Olsen are kind of known for sleeping on the, the starting line before the race in a sleeping bag and maybe or maybe not a tent. And then you wake up and you just start running. Like you wake up 15 minutes before the race and you start racing. And there's a really cool kind of dirtbag side of trail ultras at least that's um you just make it happen because yeah sponsorships especially like further back were just kind of unheard of and everybody made their own way and and i think it's definitely getting more professionalized in a depth perception i think for a while top runners have been doing pretty well in ultra running but it's far and few between and then nowadays i think there's becoming better depth in the sport for professional uh, side of it, at least in the U S then you start looking abroad and uh, depending on where you're at, it can be very difficult. Yeah. It's very interesting. Right. Cause I feel like now, I don't know. There's, I don't know. There's a, maybe a couple dozen guys sort of and girls, you know, making a living doing this or trying to make a living or getting some decent sponsorship. Well, it's just like track though. Everything's still um, in the running industry. That's very uh, disclosed and dis- and not allowed to talk about, and it's not open and transparent. So yeah, you can speculate 12 or you could speculate a hundred or you could speculate five. Um, none of those numbers are probably right. But how many, like how many guys in your group don't have other jobs? I, I guess I'm the only one that does this as my only income and we have six, seven guys uh, where um, Jared goes to school full time. Um, but as a job through college right now, uh, he's only doing running. Cody does coaching. Tim Frerichs does uh, um, 
per diem nursing. So he, he's a nurse and does that a couple times a month. And then uh, let me see, Eric does some coaching and works for Schools Nut Butter. It's like an anti-chafing company out of Flagstaff. Um, and then who else we got? Stephen Kirsch does like photography and uh, some side project stuff um, to make it happen. And yeah, you, you figure out a way to, yeah, to keep the dream alive and keep it going and, and do it. And I think we're, we all feel really fortunate to have this sense of community up here in Flagstaff and to be in Flagstaff and kind of this running Mecca up here. And I think we're also pretty stoked to be a representative of like one of the areas of running that's Flagstaff. Um, there's so many other disciplines of runners that come through here and uh, it's pretty cool to be like, some of the representatives on the trail ultra side, but then you also have guys that um, Rob, Rob Carr's not necessarily in our group, but he's a huge uh, representative of Flagstaff here and in, in the running community. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and you kind of figure out a way. Yeah, so maybe there's less than ten people doing it full time, but you know, even I tell these like track runners, no one's entitled to running professionally as a living. So a lot, of, you know, especially back in the day, a lot of these guys were running really good marathons while working full-time jobs and in a lot of ways uh ultra running's kind of the 70s of modern road running i mean in some ways it was it's pure right it was more pretty and i think also once you start running full-time it's just a lot of different pressure yes a lot of people struggle with it for sure i mean when i first did it i only did it for kind of four years and i was just stringing i was doing other stuff though like stringing i started let's run then all this other stuff but i quit my job for four months and i had a good job saved some money and i was kind of paranoid i'm like well what if i get hurt right away what happens yeah. i'm like i remember my first day in flag i was staying at some motel and i drove down to camp verde and my legs seized up really bad and i couldn't run and i'm like like well, i go well at least i went for it i go i, I get this was it but i got hurt in day, day one yeah but i think it's sort of yeah, like you said, the 70s approach, you guys just got together and started running. I, I look at it as I got nothing to lose. I kind of, when I was transitioning out of the Air Force in 2015, I, I knew I wanted to do something in my life for me and go do trail running. I was finding a lot of joy and happiness with it in a time coming off of a time that wasn't so great in my life um, with just kind of failing at being active duty military and not having a good career and uh, separating with them, but, um, making that decision to just put everything into ultra running or trail running or running in general was just the best thing I ever did for myself. Um, and it all started with, uh, I guess a summer where I went out to Western States and went out to hard rock and just tried to pace and crew and hang with the ultra community. And I learned so much and really felt like I, I learned the sport from, the right lens and perspective um, by doing it that way. And then I ended up getting a job in Flagstaff um, working 40, 45 hours a week at the local bike shop, Absolute Bikes, that hired me um, because uh, they thought I had a cool military job. And then once I explained it to them, they're like, oh, that sounds really boring. And like, it's like, yeah, but um, actually probably being in missile silos, like I would do the night shifts and yeah, you're just up in a little tiny room underground uh, all night. And I say learning to be bored is actually an extremely powerful skill in ultra running. And I actually probably uh, maybe owe some of that to missile silos. Yeah. I think I lost the narrative a bit. So I let, let you jump around. It's my fault. So high school, 
you became pretty good, made footwalkers. And you told me you ran 90 miles a week. Yeah. In high school. Um, yeah. Reading about Kenny Cormier workhorse. Um, my thing is my sophomore year, I started dabbling with 90 mile weeks and it became kind of, if I want to make it, I need to run 90 mile a week. So I, I would do whatever I had to, to hit those. And I think, especially while I was still kind of developing, um, I struggled a lot with it, experienced a lot of, uh, overtraining, um, not peaking at the right times. Um, but also hitting some of the best races ever. It might've been at a random Saturday meet that never made die stat or anywhere else. But, um, as far as Arizona running is, uh, we, we had very good runners um, come from Arizona after South, myself with Tim Breyer. Tim Breyer, he broke nine in high school. High um, school, Cotton Cotton high school, and high school, and part of our Coconino Cowboys. And then uh, there's guys like Steve Magnuson that um, he was like, they, there were three guys two years younger that were 850, 40, and like 150 high schoolers um, for two mile, mile, 800, that absolute studs. And, uh, Luckily, I got them when they were younger. But um, I've yeah, there's more folklore of like they still love talking about the the golden days back when like I was a senior. I'm like, dude, you guys were so much better than me. Like you can't talk about it that way. But um, I guess doing it that way uh, definitely made a statement and kind of inspired future Arizonans to to dream bigger. Just like Kenny Cormier doing it for me when I was. Yeah, I didn't know realize you were Cormier too. You know, you didn't, you didn't win foot lockers, but it's totally, I, I mean, I see it. You're a freshman. You see this kid doing it. It sounds like you sort of tried to emulate that. Then you go to air force, much more regimented. It's got to be very hard to run there. You know, we kind of talked through that a bit then. All right. You graduate. I think you got one job first, but then you get stationed. Like, I don't know how, if you're allowed to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. this, but like you were, you were pushing the nuclear button. I mean, you could have pushed it or like you're in some silo where the nukes are like explain what's going on here. Okay. So yeah, I did almost a year training out in Central Coast, California. I uh, lived out in Lompoc um, out there, um, which is still the smallest town I've ever lived in. But that was pretty eye-opening um, because I know when I was going to college, I thought Colorado Springs was a tiny town coming from Phoenix. Um, now I think Flagstaff is arguably too big. But uh, I was out in Great Falls, Montana, um, missile silos up in Montana that it was like two and a half, three hour drives one way. Um, I do eight shifts, uh, 24 hour shifts in Montana. Um, and yeah, there's no button. Um, they're actually, uh, switches that you turn. It takes two people, both hands. So th there's all sorts of safety mechanisms of, there's no way I could launch it by myself. Um, there's a lot of redundancy in that system. Um, and yeah, kind of ended up getting in trouble outside of the job itself. And, um, things didn't really uh, work out very well job-wise up there. I, I would say I was a very good missileer, very good at what I did, but um, yeah, I didn't make the smartest choices while I was in Montana. But also that kind of led to this like failure time in my life that started pushing me to go find stuff that I was happy with. One of the best things I learned about Montana is they really care about like their question is, well, what do you do? And in a lot of places around the country, especially in the States, it's, um, oh, I'm, I'm a professional runner or, Oh, I run let's run.com or I'm a lawyer or I'm a, I, I work at the coffee shop, um, down the street or I, this is my job. And in Montana, that question is completely different. They don't care what you do, uh, job wise. It's 
what are your hobbies? What are your passions? What do you love to go do? And it's a lot more emphasized on that. And it became a lot more developing that. And um, just getting outside in Montana, it's just a really beautiful state. And then trail running is huge up there compared to track and road. It's just non-existent because of the weather, I think. And uh, there's such great places that um, I started to learn about trail running when I was up in Montana and kind of trying to find an identity after college running for myself. And yeah, I remember having a talk in, I think 2014 after doing a, I think I was thinking about signing up for a 30 K trail race in Helena. And I, I talked with Julie Benson and I was like, I, or maybe I'd just done it. And I was like, I, I think I could do trail running. I think I could be pretty good at it. And I think she just saw a lost kid not knowing what to do in their life. And she's like, Oh yeah, I, I think you should go for it. And I just really took it to heart and just like, made a decision. I kind of knew my days were limited in the Air Force um, at that point. And I started planning for where I was going to go, what I was going to do and um, making a plan to put everything into there. So you you won JFK in the Air Force, but it's sort of kind of when this whole thing was going down with the... Yeah. So I won in November, 2014. So I was still active duty. Yeah, I was still active duty. And then I ended up leaving the Air Force in February, uh, yeah, February 2015. Um, so a few months later, but basically the way this it was like a um, mutual or, uh, but their discretion of- Mutual separation. Yeah, it was a mutual separation, but yeah, I got fired. I mean, I think the, the basics are out there, right? Because you have like a DUI and then a, there's a cheating scandal at the base you were involved in. and Yeah, yeah, just- uh, I put myself in a bad situation with the DUI that no one should be um, responsibly putting themselves in. And, uh, and then there's a whole cheating thing, which has to do more with the career field and how things worked up there, I would say. Um, And already kind of having the blemish led to uh, very much days being limited, but also sometimes not knowing uh, if I'd be kept in the air force because I ended up only serving three years active duty where uh, after a service academy, your commitment's five, but, um, on my discharge paperwork, it's filled out as a service academy commitment completed, um, which I think is a nod to, there were mistakes on both ends, the air force and my end, but, um, it was their discretion. So I got a 10 day notice in February to say, Hey, pack your stuff up. You need to leave. And, uh, I was actually gone in four days. Um, I had to rush down for my sister's wedding and basically packed up my whole life in Montana um, and was ready to get out of there and just loaded everything into U-Haul and started driving south um, in four days. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, even like ignoring the specifics, like, so it's got to be tough, right? Because you're an Air Force guy, you go to Air Force, you're this good runner, you know, stuff's going well for you. And then like sort of kind of be forced to leave that. Like you said, I mean, from what I've read, it sounded like, I don't know if the, the dark period was once you left or while this was going on, you kind of knew, figured out what was going to happen. But I think a lot of us don't deal with that, especially when we've had so much success. Well, in Montana, it was definitely probably the darkest moments because uh, it's a very like lieutenant-based job. Um, there's tons of lieutenants running the missile silos and then very, they say it's a sharp pyramid in that career field. So like as you get higher ranks, there's just, very few officers in that career field because they just need people in the silos more than anything. Um, So you have a lot of peers and basically 
they all know what's going on. They all know you're in the the shit house and it's just this stink that's on you every time you walk around and work. And yeah, it just got to a point where people are asking you like, Hey, how's things going? And you're just like, things fucking suck. Leave me alone. Like, um, and straight up tell people that and like, they just walk away and they go, wow, what's his problem? I, I mean, I just got over like faking that things were fine. And, um, yeah, there was definitely probably the most real depression I've ever dealt with in my life. Um, at that point, but yeah, it came to be what's important to me in life and, and choosing some more, uh, choices to start planning of what was making me happy and what's important. And that became like my two dream jobs after the air force was either work a running shop and a bike shop with probably a priority on a bike shop. Cause I thought bikes were so cool. And then I get to Flagstaff and it's all mountain biking. And I just go, I don't know a single thing about mountain biking where when I was in central coast, California, I got into road cycling a lot. I wasn't running much and really enjoyed road cycling, but, um, yeah, it's a long transition to get into cycling or even triathlons a little quicker, but, um, can you swim? Uh, I, I can swim just fine. Uh, not necessarily competitively, uh, compared to swimmers or triathletes. I, I had a lot of work to do. USHF on they're an advertiser and let's run. They're always recruiting. I know they, they, they missed. I slipped through the, I would have probably taken the opportunity if someone reached out, but, um, I think the Ironman's in your future. Yeah, it's on a bucket list, but probably not competitively. No, we gotta, you got to get the triple crown of ultra, which we'll talk about in a second, and the Ironman. We're expanding the list and Olympic trials. But I think there's a lesson here, right, that people can learn. What's the goal at Olympic trials, though? Goal? Make the team. Yeah. You, you, ain't, you ain't big. I know how you think. I feel, I feel like I know you now. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you add. You can go there right now if you want to. Yeah, with that, I think you need to dream and you need to inspire yourself and that's going to be the goal. That's what's going to inspire me to put my best foot forward. Um, do I know it's almost impossible or moonshot or probably not going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I'll be competing against guys that are more marathon specific, much closer to leg speed. But, um, I think with my now ultra running background, I, I do bring in a way to approach the marathon a little differently, especially on a course like Atlanta that that maybe I have a little niche if the race plays out that I could compete for a spot. Um, but yeah, dream big, swing big. And I don't know, I, I don't think there's anything to lose there. And in the longer term, I think going to the triple crown that you just mentioned, um, I think that training block and that will bode really, really well for doing comrades next year and a bigger block that way, um, no matter how the trials turn out. Uh, if, yeah, if things ever did work out and ended up making the team, um, I don't know, part of me wants to do the ultra running decision of like, no, I gave up my Olympic dream a long time ago. Uh, I'm doing comrades this summer, but which is just crazy to think about, but, um, and I, I wouldn't do, but, um, you could do both. You could do both. You'd be legendary. By then you'd be such a legend. It wouldn't even matter. Yeah. For me, that, that dream and that moonshot and that absolute, like, long shot. If you're to, if I was able to pull that off, I think that would be pretty legendary um, and go down in American running quite a bit. Oh yeah, for sure. But I think it's cool, right? Because I know as a runner, I had these dreams, I had these moonshots and mine was pr probably trying to make the Olympic team. And I sucks in college, way worse than you. And 
I don't know. I got fourth in the country twice at 10 K never the year of the Olympics, but like I became such a better runner than I thought, but also like, I feel like I was afraid to sort of share my moonshot goals without there with other people. You know, it's like, Oh, you idiot. You're slow. Or I, I won the Marine Corps marathon. I remember them asking what's kind of the first big thing I won. It was thinking 225 for the marathon. And they're like, what's next? And it was really hot. I thought, you know, and I was like, I thought then if you ran 214, you can make the Olympics. And I'm like, yeah, I want to try to make the Olympics. And I remember like some of the running people laughed. They're like, and I was like, who are you guys, man, to tell me what I can do? And I came way closer than I thought. So I think the cool thing with your story is even your ultra career, like you've got these big goals. You're not afraid to state them. And then even also like we were talking about, like when you have to leave the Air Force, in some ways that frees you. Like you had this low point and maybe I'm, maybe I'm stepping ahead, but once you reach a bottom – it's like, wait, what do I want to do? How can I come back from this? And everybody, I don't care how successful you are, how uh, how great your life is, you're going to have down points. And probably most people have much darker points than they want to admit to or that they share publicly. So I hope other people can learn from your story. Yeah, I, I say um, for me, that was my lowest point in life. But it's not to compare my low point to any other person's low point. I, I think we all have different challenges and different um, things that we deal with in life. But yeah, exactly. That's what freed me to not feel like I had anything to lose. And it doesn't matter if someone's laughing at something I say or the goals I want to make for myself. I'm doing what I want and I'm going to aim big. And um, yeah, it's the way I, I enjoy doing it. Um, I Actually, one of the hardest parts about Project Carbon X was keeping it secret. And it's like, I I wish I could have announced back in February, like I want to break Bruce Fordyce's world record and Barney Kleckler's American record in route to setting the world record in the 100K. And I, I think they would have, like, the community would have kept an eye on me a lot more so to keep me more honest and almost put more eggs into that effort. Where this one, it's like knowing that it was going to be kept a secret for a while. Um, yeah, I, I probably didn't get on the asphalt and on the track as much as I should have. And, um, yeah, le- left some things to to not quite get my best performance out, but it was still pretty pretty good day. No, it's definitely a good day. But yeah, looking ahead to the trials, there seemed to be some hint- some hesitation when I talked to you that at the Project X event that you may not do them, that that event may have changed your outlook on them because you're like, look, I'm not doing them unless I think I can run to eleven thirty. And we at Let's Run are hoping that they sort of get rid of that requirement and get an exemption so top three make it. But like, yeah, are you fully committed to the trials now? Like, what is your thought process? Yeah, as of right now, you guys are the main publishers of this. Uh, But I think everybody also takes it with a little bit of a grain of salt because it's not official official and they can always change their minds. But um, unless you have that 211.30 standard standard, it doesn't matter what place you get. Uh, they won't select you for the team. They're only going to select amongst the people with that uh, automatic standard instead of going to the rankings. So I, I understand how that works. It, But um, I, I've heard they're trying to go for a gold label um, standard on the race, which that means top five, no matter what they can choose from and have the standards. So th- yeah, that would basically make it a normal trials to for everybody to dream big again and have that traditional trials atmosphere. I have a feeling that's going to happen, um, in my opinion. But I think in my, um, my perspective, if I don't think I can aim for a 211.30 or faster marathon, then I'm probably not 
going to be fast enough in the marathon to really be competitive enough in it. So you need to have that mindset. You, you can't have the mindset, I think, in 2020 that the U.S. team is going to be made by 215, 216 quality guys. Maybe in Atlanta it will go that slow, but um, I, I don't think any everybody's um, sure how that course is going to play out for everybody. Um, if anything, I think I have some strengths that could be to my advantage there. Um, but yeah, I need to be ready to run fast and do it. And as of now, um, I need to start planning how to try to run to 1130 at the trials to, to get that standard. And who knows, maybe even still, I, they let me go and I run on the best day 212 and get a top three spot. And I'm the guy that gets snubbed because I didn't have the qualifier whatever that's like the coolest middle finger i could give to the marathon community um and walk away and oh that would be epic yeah it would be equally as epic i I, it doesn't matter there's not again there's nothing to lose in this and i love between project carbon x doing the half marathon in january talking about the marathon that i feel this is the most like top-down conversations from track all the way up to ultra running ultra running typically gets left out of the conversation especially let's run sort of crowd uh it's it's so cool to kind of see the what i consider a bigger running community coming together to debate their opinions and um (laughs) laugh and talk up or or whatnot and um that's pretty cool and it's getting more people interested in ultra running and vice versa, ultra runners that didn't really consider dropping down to do a half marathon or something. I think it's pretty sweet. Yeah, I think it's cool. And we're going to have an article actually coming out today or tomorrow on Let's Run about the trials and the attempts to get the waiver. We sort of assumed it was going to happen. And now it sounds like sort of behind the scenes, it's not as certain. But I think a lot of people want to see in the trials and think it'd be very interesting. It's just a different angle, like you said, and it's kind of cool and Talking to like Ben Rosario, he's like, I don't know if Fable could run two eleven thirty on this course. Yeah. So this, I mean, that's just kind of crazy. But also like that type of course, removing the time standard, it's going to favor someone who has got a lot of hill experience, and there's yeah. no one with more hill experience than you. Well, I think there's in in a lot of running, especially um, well, each each uh, discipline has its own mental barriers. But I kind of say ignorance is bliss, especially at an elite level, like the more ignorant you can be about going to try something, it it almost gives you a really powerful uh, advantage instead of like critically analyzing it of like, Oh, nobody can run two eleven on this course. Um, It's like, well, nobody ever told me that. So I'm going for it. And I, yeah, ignorance can be a really powerful tool in, in this scenario. Yeah. Dreamers never, you know, reach their dreams unless they dream big and go for it. And if someone along, if everybody listened to somebody said, Oh, you can't do that you would never get to where you want to be. And I was told to do my research for this podcast. And so I think I listened, I think it was a, one of your podcasts on Sidious. You're clearly a running guy because you're talking about Parker Stinson, how he's been going for it. And this was like a year and a half ago, I think this podcast or a year ago. Hey, you just hit a good one. Yeah, he's blowing up in all these marathons and people are like, you idiot, Parker, you're not that fast, don't go for it. Well, now he's the U.S. 25K record holder. So congratulations, Parker. Yeah, hey, join the club of awkward uh, American record, awkward distance American record holder. <laughs> That's right. Um, hey, they, they're still American records. I, I would take one. Yeah. Scott Smith from Flagstaff actually had a really good run there too. Taking him and uh, Footsome, or not Footsome, uh, Kia, both from Flagstaff. I think they took second, third at that race. So, yeah. But then I think two Boulder guys were like 
fourth, fifth. So people need to get out of Boulder. The fu- Flagstaff is clearly the future. When when I was running, there was like seriously two of us in Flagstaff and thirty guys in Boulder, and now it's reversed. So all the runners remaining in Boulder, please leave today. Don't come to Flagstaff. Yeah, but don't come to Flagstaff. It's too crowded. <laughs> so let's let's turn back to ultra marathon, and we can kind of end this talking about this discussion we've had on Let's Run of sort of what are the best races in the world? Also kind of like who are the best runners, where you want to see your career end up sort of this week on Let's Run, we're talking about what are the best records and, but it's some of that the runners have already come up and your name's already being mentioned of one of the best of all time. So it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you feel like that's too early, your career is too, too young, but my opinion on ultra running is maybe this is way too simplistic but there's sort of a really big three, at least in America, of how the races are viewed, and that's Western States, Comrades, and UTMB. And nobody's won all three of those. So I feel like if somebody could win all of those, they'd be totally epic. And I guess Killian's won too. Is that it? Is anyone else won? Yeah, quite a, quite a few, and especially on the women's side, quite a, quite, quite a few have won too. Uh, but on the men's side... Yeah, I want to say Killian's the only one that's won Western States and UTMB. But Francois Dain, I mean, if I wasn't there last year, he, he'd be in that category. And he's incredibly strong at 100 milers. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, impossible to say what's who's the best ultra trail guy, who's the best, uh, what's the best course record and stuff. It, that's one of the best parts about the sport is um, you get to have your opinion, I get to have mine. Um as far as getting compared to ever, um, I'm, I'm not sure uh, I've had the full body career. I, I mean, Killian's been doing this for like 12 years. He won UTMB in 2009 and he's 31 or something right now. And Francois is like 32 and he won UTMB back in 2013, 14. Like the, the amount of time that they've had in the sport to just have a full body resume um, or Scott Jerk winning Western States seven times and Trayson 14 times, uh, Ellie Greenwood winning both Western States com or yeah, Western States comrades and, and Trayson winning comrades as well. Sort of things like I, I don't have the full body of work like that. Um, as far as some of the most stellar performances, um, yeah, I think I'm may- maybe in that discussion and, um, so- some of the more exciting races. Uh, and I would almost say Matt Carpenter is more in that, category of he's hit some real diamonds but i wouldn't necessarily say um yeah if you get into shorter trail races which is the own topic i, I kind of call the shorter trail races like the joe gray world um because he's so dominant at short trail races but it's its own like lost discipline between road running and ultra running that um i i don't feel like gets its fair share of limelight does joe gray not do the longer ones or has he not had success at them I, I, he's dabbled in 50 marathon and maybe 50 K, but I would say if it starts to get two and a half hours or more, um, his training's probably more track oriented and he's probably still doing the workouts a lot more and maintaining that leg speed, which makes him so dangerous in the shorter trails. But I think also gives you a little bit of a kink in your armor once you start to extend it, um, that I, he, he hasn't had the same success when he started to to extend his trail running and also i think for him he doesn't answer that why question that's so important once you do start extending it um i'm not sure he has as good of an answer for why he wants to do a 50 miler um so he 
yeah, there, there might not be that success for him down the road in longer trail stuff. Um, although all the talent in the world is there. Why do you want to do a 50 miler? I guess it's turned into, so Scott Jurek's book North, it's, he said this and it really resonated well with me, but, um, it's just become, this is who I am and this is what I do that really helps me embody loving this discipline and wanting to go into further grindier stuff. I, I see myself getting into longer stuff, uh, as my career ages. Um, so that's, that's it. I, I guess when I first started, I had different motivations. I had different, uh, whys and like any career, whether you're going from high school to college, college to post collegiate, um, or to professional, um, your whys are always adapting and changing. Like in high school, you have friends, peers, family that you're kind of running for. And then you get thrown into a lot of times out of state college. And you're like, well, I don't know any of you guys. And a lot of kids move, like lose the motivation to compete the same way they did in high school and college. And some people in college really start to gain that uh, why question. And then um, for me, I it turned into, I had nothing to lose. Um, I really, really enjoyed the community aspect of ultra running. Um, I think it's so open door, uh, um, really good people in the sport. Um, that was appealing to me and that's who I wanted to be. Uh, I drew a lot on my experiences initially, um, from the air force of things could always be worse. And this isn't that like, this is nothing. Um, there's real life problems out there and this being doing this in ultra running is not a real life problem. So, um, get over it, get through the race and suck it up. Um, but yeah, think things adjust nowadays. I, I think embodying that this is who I like, this is an identity with me for now in my life. I think, uh, this won't last forever. And that will again, change of why I continue to do ultras or why I choose to get into cycling or bowling or rock climbing or anything else, you know? Um, yeah, you, you gotta find a passion in life and hobbies and it's important for balance. Even that why question, I think a lot of people assume, oh, ultra guys who do 50 milers can do 100 milers, but it can be twice as, more than twice as long, obviously, out there. It's like, at some point, somebody could just be like, no, why not? I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just, the mindset is so different if you're... Yeah, Sage Candy mentioned it, that speed can be a liability, but um, another part of it is like, you get yourself out there and you get yourself in a sticky situation of overdoing it a bit, and then why are you trying this anymore? Um, faster guys are kind of known for just dropping out all the time in ultras. Cause I, I don't think that why questions always answered. And even myself, I, I have, um, a decent, a, a few dropouts, um, between Diagno de Fu, I have a drop at UTMB, drop at Western States. Uh, yeah, you get yourself in a bad situation out there and why are you slogging it through there? Why are you slogging it out when you still lost the race and doing this and that? And, um, doing it as a profession also changes that, um, answer of like, well, I'm not slogging it out because I have another race on the calendar. I'm doing this as my job and I need to be ready. But, um, did you get some criticism in the ultra community for dropping out when you drop out of a race? Yeah. Yeah. We, everybody does. Uh, droppings, not a good, I, I think if, if a track road runner background, they'd say, Oh yeah, of course, pull the plug. Like, uh, you need to save the legs for another day, but that is not the ethos of ultra running. And, um, it's definitely, I think I got a lot of respect and tip of the hat from the ultra running community when like 
thing when I made a wrong turn at Western States in 2016 and despite kind of blowing like uh, nutritionally like I ended up going way longer without nutrition than I uh, had planned for um, and kind of having a late race bonk in like mile 93 to 97 that didn't even count on the course um, and then the whole mental side of it uh, uh, people were I think really happy for me to still get that finish at Western States in 2016. And that's something I'm really proud of as well. And um, I think that embodies that everybody in ultra running is suffering out there and it's not easy for the fastest guys. And it's not easy for, it's, it's a lot harder probably for the people that are just trying to run away from cutoffs um, throughout the race or as ultra running would say, hiking away from cutoffs, but uh, I'll, I'll show you a mountain. You can't run up. I guarantee it. No, there's a lot of mountains I couldn't run up. I mean, just changing that mentality of track, like where like, well, why wouldn't you run it? And like, well, if you can't run it, why would you go up that? And it's like, well, that's because the course goes that way and everybody's got to go up that. And you should, yeah, I remember my first ultra was old Gabe 50 K out in Bozeman and, uh, I was hiking some of it and it just blew my mind. I thought I was just, uh, uh, totally collapsing. And I was just so surprised that no one was catching me. And it's a big realization that everybody goes through that phase and that part of the course sucks for everybody. And nobody's running it essentially of, uh, it, it's extremely difficult. And the effort would be crazy if you were to run that part that, uh, it's just not going to happen or you're going to pay it back and bonk later. If you did run it. Turning to your career, what are the big goals you want to accomplish sort of in the remaining part of your career? Yeah, so it's kind of cool that you identified um, Western States UTMB comrades is kind of uh, what you are calling the triple crown. Um, I've I've kind of had that idea in my head for a while, and that would be an absolute career uh, dream come true. Um, that I think would separate uh, a, a little bit of a distinction of it, but it will always be debatable. It's not seven male wins at Western States. It's not. I mean. I think three guys right now have three wins at UTMB um, and it's not Bruce Fordyce's nine wins at comrades, like, but it would be my own identity in it. Um, and it, you know what? It's not a failure if I don't do it. Uh, I'm still running as a job and a profession and in my twenties, like things are pretty good and I feel really grateful and fortunate for that. Um, but again, it's an exciting goal that inspires me and uh, yeah, I want to, I want to go for it. Or the, would you say those are the three most prestigious races? Um, I would say at least in different kind of disciplines. There are three extreme races. There's other races that are very prestigious, very competitive. Competitive and prestigious are not the same answer in ultra running. Um, it's It depends what type of ultra running you really like. Um, and once you get on to track ultras, probably world records are most prestigious. It's not necessarily winning event because you could set up a track and do it anywhere. Cause it's also standardized. Um, uh, as long as you have like, uh, the certifications and drug testing in place for it. But, um, what races are we missing? If Well, I, I mean, I think Lake Saroma is a great one. Um, that's a hundred K in June in Japan that talking comrades with Hideki out at project carbon X, um, he never really even considered comrades because it just conflicts with Lake Saroma. Um, I mean, in the States, you talk about 50 mile distance, 50, hundred K kind of distance on the trails. You got Lake Sonoma um, and the North face 50 mile, um, probably the two most prestigious in the U S for that distance. Um, 
yeah, you got two oceans, comrades, kind of sister stuff down there. Um, beyond those two, uh, you're, you're kind of getting into your niche and nitty gritty. There's FKTs. It, it's difficult. I, I don't think to narrow it down. I think uh, find a part of ultra running that you enjoy. And um, there's different prestigious and goals that you can find that way. I, I, I like that triple crown because um, I think it, involves such extreme skills and um comrades is not utmb that those are two races that are very difficult to probably put together western states is more in the middle um and that being just uh probably the ultra in the u.s that americans go crazy for um europeans don't think as much about western states compared to utmb because it doesn't have the numbers it doesn't invite uh elites the same way uh utmb if you have an elite uh they do things off of an itra score so i don't know if you've gotten into that much i I know you're number one you're number one yeah it's kind of cool because a few years ago they did it completely objectively off of your time course and stats of the course sort of thing and when i did it i kind of came up to number one before anybody had really ever heard of me and killian journey was number one for like eight years and it was just like that kind of lit lit up a little bit in Europe, but Americans know like don't follow it at all. Um, Americans typically follow like ultra sign up, which is kind of not necessarily a, a good indicator because it's just uh, that one's based off a of competition. As long as you win races, you get a good percentage and stuff, and you could have a great race, finish third, and not get a good percent. So that one's not a good one. So that one always you need to learn how to read it. Interest same way though, but you can also look up historical runs on it. They've uploaded a lot of it into their like algorithm. They've started putting a little bit of competition bias into it, so that brings a bit of a problem um, for good and for bad. There's an argument. They thought it was important enough to do it, but one of the cool parts is like some. I I was able to get such a high ranking off of like being a nobody and doing it as a dirt bag and out of the ultras that I was able to get to and go do. Um, so things like that. So now competition and if you're competing against guys with higher ITRA scores, you theoretically would get a little bit of a bump in that. Which, How long have you been number one in ITRA? Uh, I think for about two years. I think 2017. Yeah, February. So over two years. Because I think Tarawera down in New Zealand, I ran a really good race. But then they flipped the course, so no one will ever run that exact course again. Um, so yeah, that, that's trail running too. Uh, but ITRA puts a objective score, um, better than any other system out there, probably, uh, to trail races and you can look up ITRA scores and I think it's, I I don't know what a thousand is on it, but a thousand is supposed to be the best score. And like my best score is in the high nine fifties, but a thousand might be like your, your two Oh three marathon, maybe Kipchoge marathon or something. Um, I, I don't know, but the more extreme the terrain is you get, yeah, your pace is going to slow down. So it plays factors into how they score it. But like Matt Carpenter's uh, Pikes Peak Marathon is the highest score I've ever seen on it. Um, it's actually scored at like 993, I think. Insanely high. I think Killian's highest scores are like around mid 940s and he's only got a couple. Um, I think I have three 950 and above. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek. Um, so I, I'm interested in it. It seems like Matt Carpenter's known for the Pikes Peak Marathon. Would you have any interest in doing that race, or that's just not your thing? It's too spit. 
too special. Totally. I definitely do. I think I can roll the descent uh, quite a bit faster than he can or did. Um, especially looking at Dakota Jones, actually, I think ran the fastest descent last year. And I know Dakota uh, is an extremely good downhill runner, especially uh, runnable downhill, like a Pikes Peak descent or Kendall Mountain is where I've seen Dakota personally just rip a descent. Um, but Dakota's not as good of a climber as Matt Carpenter um, is. So it's been interesting. Matt Carpenter is just known as being a high altitude aerobic beast, but he's also got Imogene pass. Yeah. I, I think Matt Carpenter's stuff is definitely in my future. It's just not working out this year. I know with Killian Journey announcing that he's doing Zagama, Sierra Zanel and Pikes Peak. Um, he's trying to get course records at those. Uh, so that'll be interesting. So are you doing UTMB this year? I don't, I I'm probably not doing UTMB. My, Next race after Western States, I have Sierra now. So that's a really big prestigious race out in uh, Europe. That's 31K out in Switzerland. Uh, Killian's won it six times. This is one of the hardest records in trail running. Uh, Jonathan Wyatt has the course record there. Um, New Zealander, Olympian, um, abs- I think a nine-time mountain world champion. Uh absolute badass um and the only guy to go under 230 at sierra's now um i think there's a bit of a learning curve out there um at that course i think it would be a bit luck to be able to pull off the perfect race first time i kind of have it as more of a priority race next year because i would ideally not do western states uh before sierra's now um because i've found like with that race, at least, uh, in hundred milers, you kind of got to play it by ear, how to recover from it. Why no UTMB? This, this one's too close. Um, how are you going to get your triple crown? If you don't, if you don't, if you haven't run comrades and you haven't won UTMB. So I have, yeah, I'm, I got a long way to go. Um, I, I have found that the Western States UTMB double is difficult talking with even Killian and Francois, um, who have both done it. Killian actually won, Western States and UTMB in the same year. Um, only person to do that. I th- Oh, no, no, not person. Sorry. Uh, and no. Yeah, yeah, I think UTMB, Western States double. I think he might be the only one in the same year. But they think it's an extremely difficult uh, double to do. Francois, I talked with him and we're, we're thinking about getting more of the bigger names in ultra running to all plan to do it in 2020. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, just taking a little bit of a mental break from it. I've, I've done it the last two years, um, had difficulties in both races, um, pulled out a fifth place finish in one of the faster, I think it's the fifth fastest time, but again, the course changes. Yeah. I I don't know. It's a mixed bag. And I just talking with Francois, mostly it was, uh, he thought it would be a good thing to take a mental break from it and just take a year off and, but the hardest part about that is for American men, we're all still dreaming about being the first American man to win it. Um, an American, the American men hasn't, haven't fared as well. I think Topher Gaylord is actually the highest American finisher. And one of the first years he took second. Um, and Mike, Foot, I want to say is taking third or Mike Wolf, one of the mics up in Montana and stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're a little ways off of UTMB. And it's pretty interesting that your competitors are, you know, giving you career advice. Racing advice. Francois's got a different skill set. I think we've we've gotten along pretty well. Um, 
I, I think there's a really good mutual ex, uh, respect there. And I, I think he's got just a really great, unique skill set um, in these long, hard ultras uh, that, yeah, that guy can hike so fast. It's insane. But yeah, he's just really strong and mentally uh, has the right mind for the sport that uh, I could learn a lot from him. Killian's actually isn't as much of a 100-mile guy, I think, as a lot of people give him credit for. Um, I think he's really like a 50K mountain guy, um, like a five-hour mountain race with technical stuff. And he, he's got a great skill set. I would say if if you wanted a matchup where an ultra runner was going to win, um, let Killian pick the course and race Killian to any marathoner in the world, and Killian would definitely get him. He's got a very extreme, unique skill set um, that that's harder that's hard for any trail runner. Um, but at the same time, trail races are typically still on trails, and he uh, tra- trails are more even. Um, I think many people can keep up with him on trails. Um, so speaking of beating Killian, could beat any runner if he picked the course. My brother has backed off his claim that Kipchoge could sit on your co- shoulder and kick your ass. He says, the more I've learned, I don't think Kipchoge would win all of these races, even if he trained for them. Running down a mountain requires strength, and it may not be related at all to running 201.39. UTMB is, he's got all caps here, totally different than a marathon. But he wants, so he wants to know, like, yeah, what race distance do you think you could first beat Kipchoge at, or what type of race do you think you could first beat him at? Uh, I don't know. I I smile when talking about Western states, because I feel like um, being from Phoenix and liking the runnable mountains i feel like that one plays a lot to my strengths i feel pretty comfortable there but at the same time i've gotten myself into my own trouble at that race um two out of three times (laughs) yeah there's no guarantee in ultra running um but if i were yeah it depends uh so with someone that good of running i would want to make it the least amount of running possible compared to uh technical mountain stuff i i would put kipchoge into more out of his comfort zone that's more like i'm okay with the, this slow pace and i got you in my efficiency zone the more runnable the ultra um the more he'll be comfortable and his just absolute talent will will overpower um the, the grindy ultra stuff so i think you got to get him something where he's not comfortable with and obviously he's not going to be training on ridge tops and and scree fields and snow and uh yeah get him in a cold ultra <laughs> that's a, that's another good way of uh doing that i mean we could probably beat him in a 5k in the snow you'd probably have no trouble <laughs> no i think he'd still get me <laughs> i mean he's splitting 5ks faster than i think my pr right now yeah we figured out what his marathon pace is for 10k you have any idea uh, probably like 28 low, you know, 2850, 2849. Oh, yeah, it's insane. Still pretty good. We know what races you want to win before you're done. I mean, there's the triple crown and some others, but are there any records that are out there sort of world records? I mean, even some of these 24 hour runs, are there any records on the books that you want to try to make sure you get before your career is done? Well, I, I would say first uh, transitioning with that is, uh, you guys find your marathoner and the grand Canyon's always open. So, uh, there's a really great rim to rim to rim record there that i have and that would be a great way to at least experiment with that idea just don't let anyone die down there please uh and then they have no chance on that right we were talking about that before we got in the air rim to rim no way rim to rim to rim rim to rim i think there's a few people that there's still time on both 
Um, but I'm not sure who could get more time on the rim to rim to rim. Uh, I, I think I could drop 15, 15, 20 minutes on my rim to rim to rim. Uh, and I, I have that as a bucket list, uh, course records. Um, I think comrades has a little bit of skepticism from my viewpoint and clean competing that course records don't seem as important at comrades to me. Um, UTMB gets changed too much. Uh, Leadville seems like a great one. Pikes Peak Marathon, Sierra Zanal. What about some of the road records or the 24-hour records? Is any of that ever interest you? Is that your trail guy? I, ha- I haven't started thinking as much about the 24-hour records and stuff, but the way that so many, regar- so many people regard Giannis Chorus is 24 hours, Spartathlon, and 48-hour records. I could see get dabbling in that stuff. But again, dabbling will set you up for failure in ultra running. You got to be fully committed to it. So um, that's a tough idea to wrap your head around to start doing 24, 48-hour track races. So, But I, th- I think you have to commit to it and eventually it'll be, well, yeah, this is who I am and this is what I do now. And you use it to your strength. Um, that That's how you have to do it, in my opinion. Um his Spartathlon record's supposed to be pretty out there as well. No, I the, the roads are plus minus game. I, I really enjoy the process of training on trails over roads. Um, and as I learned with this 50 mile 100K Project X, uh, I needed to do more training on the asphalt. And for comrades next year, uh, I need to do uh, more training on the asphalt and find some really hilly asphalt roads. Yeah, I mean, it's just, the variety of terrain and distance and everything still is amazing. Me, I, I'm kind of embarrassed. I knew so little about this until this exploration. So personally, I've been very glad that Hoka, I don't know. We debate who came up with the idea. First I gave Hoka credit. Now my brother's taking credit, but he's also the one that said Kipchoge could kick your ass and has now backed off that. So Robert. Let's see. I mean, I think, yeah, Western States. Yeah. Like it, I said in the Sidious podcast is like, I would love for people to sit on my shoulder just because uh, I think I can push people into making mistakes that are what ultra runners would consider like uh, common knowledge and duh. But um, I mean, without newer people, training, they'd have no chance. And then they get swept down the river. I mean, there's all this cool shit I didn't even know about. <laughs> well, now they made it a rule. You have to hold on to the rope. So that's like one of the gym. I have a like basically a Walmsley turn and a, uh, a Wamsley rule, um, which is kind of funny, but hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be following Western States for the first time this year. So it, oh man, it's it's a I'm expecting a big it's thing. Awesome, you, you, it's great because you, you know win lose or whatever you're gonna entertain. So that's what people want. Yeah, you get to kind of have your normal Saturday and you just check in every couple hours, but you totally get sucked in and you'll start refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. Because I mean, I watch ultras as well and I follow it. And especially when I have a friend invested in a race, it's like, oh, where are they at? They're supposed to be like, especially when they have like time expected into the next aid station and stuff, It's it gets you so sucked in. And then um, a style of ultra running that you guys haven't brought up that is gaining, I think, a lot of popularity is uh, backyard ultras that you'll have to look into. What is that? <laughs> so, so, you know, um, Barclays marathon. I was about to say, is that like Barclays? No, but, uh, you, so Laz, uh, probably has the most famous, uh, backyard ultra right now. 
Um, and it's called Big's Backyard Ultra. But I've seen more backyard ultras start popping up that they didn't necessarily exist. So what happens is basically everyone, it, it equalizes talent. So you, you do like, I've seen like 2.8 to 5 mile loops. And you have to finish the loop in a certain amount of time. So if it's a 5 mile loop, you got to do it in uh, an hour. Okay? So it's not fast but you can only start the loop every hour and it's a last man, last man standing competition. Oh, someone did a really badass one last year, right? Some female Courtney DeWalter got into, I mean, they ran like 278 miles. I want to say over like 60 something hours and, and like it's sleep deprivation. It's, Oh my gosh. I don't think I want to get into those ultras, but, uh, yeah, that's crazy. And it's like you're competing against who shows up and um, it really equalizes uh, speed all of a sudden doesn't matter um, as much. Like y- you get more recovery from pace and stuff. So you guys compare stuff of like it's like going out on a um, – say you go out on a 210 marathon and then you just hold on for uh, five miles at this pace, or you go out on a two ten marathon and now you just have to run 24 miles in this pace to get the 50 mile record. It's not the same because you're just dealing with different variabilities. And like the faster you go, the more you dig yourself into a hole and the bigger bonk you're going to get later because the bonk will come. And probably the more patient and cautious you are, the, the more smooth that bonk will transition into that suffer zone that everybody eventually finds themselves in. I get, I had heard of what Courtney did, but I didn't know about the term backyard ultra. So maybe, maybe Hoka can come back and pay for us to explore that. We'll put on one. I'm going to put on one in, in my backyard. Yeah. Typically the faster you are, the more you're just like, I'm just not into this. Your, your why disappears. So, um, oh, what if, what if we like crowdsource a bunch of cash We'll have like the world's richest let's run ultra. It'll just be a backyard ultra and we'll be like, all right, you have to run. You're, you're going to get the most desperate dirt bag ultra guy that ends up winning it. Cause their why is just so strong. It's like talent doesn't matter. And like pros are just getting their butt kicked. Cause it's like, it's not going to change their job. I'll bring in some random Kenyan too. It'll be interesting. See, I think if we get enough money, we could, we could. Yeah. Like what? I could pay some Kenyan like five grand to race you in the Canyon. Right. You would kick his butt. So I think Red Bull or somebody should do that. You don't even, but what I'm saying is you don't even need me in the equation. The FKTs out there go compare their time. I mean, Killian Jornet's ran it. Rob Carr's ran it. So you guys just go to the rim. Who verifies this stuff? And you just start and you have to doc, like pretty much you have to document it um, with typically photos, time and people verifying it. So it, it's a little bit of an honor system, but you and one other person on the North side, is enough to verify it. Sometimes people do it solo and they'll take pictures of the North Rim when they hit the North Rim. Because one of the beauties about the canyon is there's no faster way through the canyon and there's no way to shortcut any part of it. Um, It is what it is and you can't pop out if you didn't run through the canyon. It's true. Helicopter. If you don't come out at the top, (laughs) <laughs> there are helicopters, but I'm not sure it's faster. Do you just quickly go put your foot on the top? Like do both feet have to hit the top and you start running back down? What are the rules? Typically you have to put your hand on the kiosks, the trailhead kiosks. There's these like little map information things and they got these stones. And I, I would say you have to start with your hand on it when you hit start on the watch. And then uh, 
or foot to hit your watch. And then um, you start going. And then depending on the time of year you do it, you got to deal with night or uh, lighting is an issue. Um, depending on the time of year, the faucet. How many hours does it take? What's your record? Five hours, 55 minutes. 555 uh, there and back? Yeah. How many miles? 42 with 11,000 feet of climbing. That's nuts. So it, it's pretty slow. What's the number? What's the second fastest time? Rob Carr at 621. Wow. And that one was considered pretty untouchable, but then I took 26 minutes off of it. And I, I, think, I think a really great rim to rim would be around two and a half hours to put that in perspective. Right now it's currently at 249, I think, by Tim Frericks. But Tim and I run... Uh, and Jared Hazen now, but um, at the time, like we run the canyon so much more than anyone else in the world. Um, and then, even compared to now, wait, Tim has the rim to rim record. Tim has the the rim to rim one way. Why don't you try to beat that one? I got to go back and do it. It's on a bu- It's a hard effort. Um, and where do you find time for it? Rim to rim is a bit better. Logistically, rim to rim sucks because it's four hours drive around. Do you camp the night before? Uh, does someone drop you off and waste 10 hours of their day? Um, so what did you split in your rim to rim rim? So I, I mine's pretty cool. Cause the South rim is at 7,000 feet. The North rim is at 8,000 feet. There's more climb. It's for the most part considered slower to go South to North and it's not distinguish which way you have to run it. Uh-huh. It's kind of set up. You get to run it either way. So when I, when I did my rim to rim to rim, um, Oh, excuse me. Tim's time is 239 because my time was 246. But I ran that south to north on my rim to rim to rim. And I think I was crying as I was like descending back in of like the way things were set up. I didn't need to, I was just going for one record and I didn't necessarily mean to get the rim to rim, but I knew I was just going to be hurting so bad to go back down there and climb out again. Um, But it was totally worth it. Cause that day sucks to push that hard. So yeah, I've done South to North in two forty six, and that knocked five minutes off of Rob Carr's time of two fifty one. And, and it goes to, I think locals in Flagstaff have a big advantage because we have access to train in it and, and, and to know it, that was actually Tim Frerick's first time ever on the most North four miles of the trail though, when he ran uh, rim to rim. Um, but he did it north to south so it's net downhill but you got a harder climb out um and yeah it's interesting rim to rim is a really great run uh it's 21 miles um you don't have to do it twice like passing people is that any trouble on the trails yeah so you got to be comfortable with that you you have to respect other people typically when does the park service get mad i mean they used to get mad when i would go hiking without water don't do it people you can die at the grand canyon this was in the winter yeah. So there's totally trail etiquette out there. Other people have the right to be in the national park and enjoy it. Um, but when you're really huffing and puffing and like working, people usually hear you. And like, uh, it's amazing that on my hardest efforts in the Canyon, cause usually I'm taking it pretty casually and using it as a training run and I'll get out of the way and try to be as respectful as possible. But on really hard efforts, I'll be a little more aggressive and people usually see that effort and respect it and like usually cheer, um, which is almost a weird thing too. Um, but then mules and there's these things called mule trains where they're taking supplies on the mules up and down the Canyon. 
they they have uh, absolute right away, um, and you can't walk past them. You have to stay in your where you're at while they go by. And sometimes, like especially on training runs, you'll get stuck behind them. So part of the canyon is timing it, learning when they're going, on depending on what season you're running, and um, avoiding the mule trains. And we have our own secrets for avoiding the mule trains. But um, yeah, if you hit a mule train, you get stuck behind it or uh, you have to wait for them to pass for sure. So I finally found one secret you won't share with people. That's your secret. It's not the training that goes up on Strava. It's how to avoid the mule train on the Grand Canyon. Well, you could analyze my training and maybe figure out um, some hints on it. But yeah, I'll keep I'll keep that as a secret because I, I, we all love the... Someone on the message boards will figure this out, please. Somebody. Yeah. Um, and then also right now, uh, if, if probably the most likely thing you could do is have someone go for the fastest climb out of South Kaibab. Um, and right now my fastest time from the end of the tunnel at the black bridge to the top is 63 minutes, um, which is actually, so on Strava, it'll show 65 as like the public segments because they that segment starts on the other side of the river and I actually disagree with it. But uh, there's a hidden segment that really starts from once you pop out of the tunnel to the very top. Um, and that one's verified 63 minutes. Uh, and that's the only run ever to average under 10-minute miles out of South Kaibab. Crazy. And the Grand Canyon... My favorite place on earth. So I'm jealous that you, I don't know if I'd, I might ruin it though if I was running really hard, but. No, because people, yeah. I, I mean, I get comments and stuff like, how can you enjoy the Canyon or enjoy anywhere when you're running and you're not soaking it in of like, my answer to that is this is how I enjoy it. This is how I like being in this place. This is my favorite way to enjoy the outdoors is by running it. And that's how I feel connected with where I am. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're doing what you love and where you love it. So it's hard to beat that. Yeah. I, I feel pretty lucky that I, I also get to say I'm a, a born and raised Arizonan as well. So that's, that kind of makes it a little more special for me too. Yep. I'm jealous. I wish I was still in Flagstaff. Well, not true. I love being with my wife in New York city. <laughs> we're we're going to make two hours. This is going to be a record. Final quick questions. Okay. I, that's what I do. <laughs> Who are the greatest ultra marathoners of all time male and female um well the american i i have an american lens um female i'd give it to ann Trayson. uh she just set the bar so much and exceeded what other women were doing at the time in my opinion i think she's pretty great um male male's a bit harder um i'll, I'll go with someone that ha- probably hasn't gotten mentioned uh tim tweetmeyer is great Ooh. And it, it won't be oh, Tim gosh. Tweetmeyer. I'll, I'll, I'll let you Google it, but uh, he's got some pretty. Spell, how do we spell it even? I swear I haven't even seen his name. I have a document here. Let me check my Google Doc that we'd started. Um, I'll, I'll throw him out there as as my favorite best. But um, see, are you really being serious? Or you're just trying to be difficult now. Probably just being difficult uh, and throwing out a very respectable ultra guy. But his career as a full body thing. I would say is pretty unmatched. What's, what, what are his career highlights? You got to be his PR agent for me. Oh, I'm, I want to say he has five Western States wins, um, but he has 25 Western States finishes under 24 hours. Oh, I've heard of this guy. 
He's like the iron ultraman of Western states. So uh, being Western states biased, American biased, and wanting to give you someone that you probably haven't had mentioned yet to stir the controversy more, I'll, I'll go with him. Uh, but and, and then also I have like an era bias as well. I think everybody that starts learning about the sport in that era is very biased to the people they first start learning about of like, this guy's such a badass. So, I mean, modern day guys uh, right now, Francois Dain, Kylian Jornet. Um, I mean, uh, man, I'm bad at pronouncing the South Africans name, um, but that just won two oceans, but he's got three comrades and a two oceans win under his belt and some second places at the world hundred K's. Um, Hideki could, he, he probably needs to work on a full bodiness, but I mean, two world K world hundred K championships is extremely impressive. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, th- there's so many answers for that question that you're looking for. What about, all right, current, current ultras. We won't do the men since you're men. Current women's ultra marathoners. Who's the best? Um, I, I think Courtney DeWalter is the most well-rounded best female ultra runner right now and really embodies that grindy suffering um that in my opinion i think i still have so much more to to learn and embody uh that i i I find it uh very admirable and like someone like well i have a let's run american bias but someone like camille is just too road focused to track like hasn't done enough on the on the i i think she needs to show more variability um to be considered that i i think what full body wise what Courtney's done comparatively outweighs it um, be, because like she's still done it 24 hours on the track. They're like two miles apart um, in 24 hours. So she's still doing stuff on the roads um, or track. Uh, so wait, Oh, Courtney's road time is within two hours of her, her 24 hour track times or track distance is 159 miles where Camille just broke it December and, she ran 161, but she's she's not put she she's not successfully pulling off the trail ultras yet. Um, right now, to I think the current best I would say is Courtney and um, worldwide. But but yeah, you could get into shorter ultras and stuff. And there's better women out there. I th- I think uh, you got Ida Nielsen uh, coming from that track back. I mean that's a Flagstaff bias. I th- she's an NAU grad. Um, Ruth Croft out of New Zealand. Um, the the woman from I think uh, it's like Dagna, but she's rolling some really good uh, shorter trail races and just won Transvolcania. Transvolcania is another race that should make your guys' list as far as really prestigious uh, fifty mile kind of distance. Um, it, it depends what ultras you want to look at. If you want to do road ultra person. Camille's probably the the best road ultra person currently. Um, But road ultras also translate best for marathoners. So I would also argue you could start pulling more marathoners and road ultra records would be the first to fall, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we were kind of looking at some of the best records ever. And like the women's 100K record is, yeah, it just crushes. And she was a world-class marathoner. Yeah, it's interesting. It would be really interesting to learn more context about her, who she is, where she came from, what, why'd she do it? Uh, yeah. You need to answer more full body questions about a person to probably put it into context and 
Yep. Welcome to ultra running. All right. We got, I got two questions from Jonathan Galt to end this. If you had the option of being the world's best marathoner or the world's best ultra marathoner, which would you choose and why? Um, I, I think marathon because it's the top of the pyramid in our sport. I think it's gained, especially what Kipchoge's done has been incredible. Um, but, uh, so that was a, that was a trick question. I think the marathon is really accumulated to being the pinnacle of whether you're coming from trackside or any other Avenue. Uh, I think it's drawing the best talent in the world. So I think the best marathoner in the world, it should get the crown of the best runner in the world, uh, for a distance. We'll say that because obviously then there's the whole debate of probably once you move under the 800, uh, yeah, it, it takes on a new specialization. And finally, how do you feel ultra runners are generally perceived on let's run is the perception fair? What are the biggest misconceptions people have? Uh, so the definitive answer for that is hobby jogger, I think is uh, let's run's favorite usage for anyone that they want to talk trash to. Um, and is it fair? Uh, depends. I mean, that's part of online chat is that you don't know who's necessarily saying it. Uh, if Kipchoge's calling ultra runners hobby joggers, then maybe that's fair. Um, but I would say it's not fair for the most part. One of my biggest learning curves in ultra running, um, and it was actually probably in 2014 when Sage Candy and Killian was racing really great as always. Uh, um, a big rude awakening was uh, ultra runners train hard, they train specifically, and they do a lot. They're still extremely difficult to beat, and you can't dabble in it and come and think you're going to win it. Um, I think full commitment to owning being an ultra runner is probably the best thing you can do if you want to truly have success in ultra running. And, and if you have one good ultra, probably the ultra running community doesn't really care. Um, they it's a flash in the pan as they would say. And I think ultra running community really likes embodying someone that wants to be in the sport longer term. And, uh, they also, as a group, we, we also probably cherish, uh, people that have been in the sport for a long time. So you talk about the Tim Tweetmire with so many Western States and, um, there's a really big pride in that. There's really big, like, prestige i would say for being the oldest finisher at western states people are, are trying to out compete each other for older oldest finishers at western states and typically that's just as big of a storyline as anything else at western states which is pretty incredible and speaks to um a bigger top-down part of the community and i would also say whether you call us a hobby jogger or whatnot um you guys are still welcome to come join us out on the trails uh i think it's a pretty open open community that makes it pretty special well thanks for the offer and uh, hey if you're hobby jogging keep doing it because you're doing it pretty good so hey i enjoy it (laughs) well thank you for the time i really appreciate it yeah no problem uh great talking with you and uh looking forward to it oh wait jim i might as well ask you since you had your own cheater shoes made for you i I feel like um how, how do you like the carbon x shoes and sort of yeah i think the shoes are pretty cool also i'm curious Let's talk about Carbon X first, actually. But I'm curious what shoes you train in all the time. But I do most of my training probably in like Speedgoats or Mafati or Clifton's. Uh, so more typical uh, Hoka base shoes. Occasionally, I'll throw on um, what used to be the Tracers. Now I have the choice of the Carbon Rocket or the Carbon X to do workouts in. So the, that'll happen like 
once or twice a month. Um, but, uh, yeah, the carbon X's were a really fun shoe. They, they've worked out well for me so far. Um, I've hit really good workouts, long runs, and now a world record in. So it's hard to complain about a shoe that I feel confident and good about. Um, I, I think it brings its own different part of it. It's got, um, from, I've actually never worn or put on a pair of Nike Vaporflies, but, um, Hoka has done their own unique geometry with it that's going to be different. Um, the drop, I think they said it came out is a five millimeter drop, which is more true to what they traditionally do. Just in general, that sort of shoe is really going to play to what Hoka does in general with uh, cushion. Um, they also do a dual layer with like a rubberized foam on the bottom layer and then uh, a new foam that they have uh, on the top layer. And then uh, Hoka in general feels really confident with where and how they've done with the, the carbon plate that's going to separate that shoe um, as a special performer. And yeah, I mean, for me, it's the, the results have been speaking for themselves. And uh, yeah, I'll keep wearing that shoe for, for workouts and, and helping me get the most out of myself, like myself as a runner. Um, it's a cool shoe to have in my repertoire now. Yeah, but I'm sure it's different for you because you're not on the roads that much. But they gave me a pair of the shoes, and I don't run fast enough. I feel like, but I was—I've been walking around in them; they're very comfortable. And then when I noticed when I was running, the plates at an angle, I think. So I, I very rarely go run hard, but I maybe mentally was motivated to do it. But also, I felt like when I was towing off, I was at the angle. I remember going down, and when I was training, being in Flagstaff, and I was running really hard. I my foot would take this angle in the air. I'd only see it when I was running fast. Have you experienced anything like that with a plate towing off like that? Or am I making this up? I mean, I've talked to nobody about this, but I heard the plate was at an angle and I'm like, oh, I'm running fast. I'm I'm not sure. I I can't, I I don't know how the plate is angled or anything. Um, But I know Hoka as a company is really confident with how they've used the plate combined with the foams that um, all in all, it's going to be a really good and fast shoe. Um, it, yeah, it is different. The toe off is definitely different than most of the shoes. It, I did a lot, a lot more training in that shoe just because it's a different enough shoe that I knew I needed to start, uh, getting used to it a bit to, to run a hundred K in that shoe. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of get what you're saying with it. It feels different and feels fast. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be a race shoe, so uh, I, I think they're they're getting that done. Yeah, never run on the Carbon Rocket, but my take on the Carbon X is like it's a race shoe that can just take a beating. Yeah, uh, it can't well. it can't take too much of a beating on the. It's not a good trail shoe, I'll tell you that. No road shoe. No, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm, I didn't. I mean, to a normal person, I'm not. We, we were testing them out. Greatest ultra marathoner. <laughs> we were testing them out and we had some prototypes, but they're like all coming in white and our just running joke was that we we're going to take them into the Canyon on a dusty day. And just like, uh, we broke it your shoes and they changed colors to red on us. And, uh, but none, <laughs> no one had the balls to take those shoes into the Canyon and dust them up and give them back to Hoka. All like, here's what happened when we took your shoes into the Canyon, like almost a far, a forest gump, like, sorry, I broke it your shoes. <laughs> But yeah, the white color that shows it's definitely made for the roads. I think it's coming out in a black as well, but um, I'm not sure. 
it's a cool shoe and for the roads it's it's really great yeah the the carbon rocket is a completely different feeling shoe um but the carbon rocket right now is the owner of uh scott fobble's 209 and cam levin's 209 so i think again um hoke is doing something with their shoes and they're getting good performances out of them they're definitely turning some heads because not many americans and canadians are running sub 210 so well it's this made up barrier that has gotten more attention lately yeah it's made up but also when people question it yeah the, know, the, the, not many guys are running 201 so is it kipchoge or the shoes but well, when they're running in a new shoe and they do something they hadn't done before people start to wonder hey is this helping out and i think that's what everybody in general wants. the east african marathoners are are really um p- pushing the limits in the marathon and excelling so uh yeah, the, the rest of us need to catch up to East Africa and Japan. Um, and yeah, it, it helps push us. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, hopefully times keep doing it. But I think with American running, there's a bit more folklore with it, with incentives to race uh, courses that aren't necessarily time trial fast courses. Like you, you get more Americans running Boston, Chicago, and New York than you do having them go abroad to run uh, Berlin and London, you know? So, um, rightfully so, like we should want our Americans to race in the States. It's gives you that hometown cheering effect and, uh, someone to root for. But I think marathoners with doing one or two a year, basically, in most American marathoners, I think they're, they're missing out on opportunities to get their best PRs that don't speak to the level of marathoners that they truly are. And I think Jared Ward's just obviously the great, um, counter argument to it of like sixth place at the Olympics um, before he was a 209 guy. And now you're starting to see his time come down and it could still go down even further. You know? Uh, I, yeah. I think we have extremely talented marathoners and then all these guys that are in that 212 to 214 range that anyone could have a breakthrough and all of a sudden on the path to two two Oh, whatever um, who knows? Uh, I think there's a ton of studs that have debuted and not an eye-opening marathon yet, but could in the next couple of years really break out. And marathoners race less than ultra marathoners. Do you think it, there's more recovery for them from the marathon? I mean, people would think not because it's less distance, but or that it takes, you have to get the speed down. So it just takes more time to get ready for that one race. Or do you think marathoners are too soft? <laughs> I'll just say marathoners are too soft uh, just to be controversial. But I would say, um, the marathon in general takes such peak performance to really compete. Um, and the training block required to cover your speed, your endurance, your strength, and so many variables that you need to be so well-rounded in the marathon. Um, I, I get it. it. It's difficult to, uh, do multiple of, um, I know for when I want to debut in the marathon at the trials, Um, I'm looking to do a longer block than I usually would for ultras. And I'm debating whether I'm going to throw an ultra like a 50 miler in, in November or not with JFK or North face being one of them. And I think JFK being the most, um, transitioning into marathon training, the easiest and paying it back the least, uh, possible. Um, but then the North face is really fun and I haven't gotten to be able to race that one yet. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Or probably the smartest thing if I really want to do the marathon fully is to probably skip it and work on the training block and the fundamental stuff and come back to Houston to run the half marathon before the mar- before the marathon and try to run it a little riskier 
and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally get the specialization that marathoners have with it. It's just, again, I think it's the, the top of the pyramid of the sport, um, for, for distance runners. Yep. Well, hopefully I see you next. Well, maybe hopefully before then, but if not Olympic trials, Hey, if you get the weekend off, uh, spectating Western States is even better in person and it'll, it'll get you to sweat as a spectator for sure. It's, it's disgustingly hot for everybody. I already checked. I can't do it this week, this year, but you guys, for the first time, have me check my calendar for a ultra marathon. So the other one I'll throw out there, that's a really special environment is hard rock. Uh, it'll be my fifth year at both of those races. And I think those are two like kind of grandfather races in us ultra running. That is another one worth checking out. I, I have extra room around our tent campground. We, we always have visitors coming and going, but yeah, you probably got to bring a tent and a sleeping pad and lots of dry clothes. Cause it is winter and rainy up there. And so you're also final thing. You're about to go leave your apartment in Flagstaff, move to Colorado and live at a tent for two months. This year is going to be a bit shorter. Um, I, I feel like Sierra's now so competitive and specialized that uh, it's probably best served being in a little more controlled environment and not quite as high of elevation. Um, so I'm going to do about three weeks uh, out in Colorado. I mean, I just bring camping stuff. It's I'm not moving out. I still have my place in Flagstaff. And uh, so, I, I mean, it's part of the sport that I enjoy as well. How do you check what's run when you're there? The Silverton Library has Wi-Fi and I check it. So that was the first quote of the day ever was, uh, I think while I was in Silverton in 2016, I only know because I was signing a contract and that's why I was in the library to begin with. And I caught it on a random day. And I think I, there was an outside magazine article that they're asking pro ultra runners, like, what's your favorite website? And so here's my only get up though, is my only quote of the days have been talking about let's run. I don't get legitimate quote of the days. It's just publicity plugs for let's run as opposed to, Oh, Jim has great insight. It's like, Oh, Jim was talking about us. Let's get it. You've exposed, you've exposed what we are. We used to <laughs> marathoners when we want to. That's your only quote of the day. I'll have to check your, you might've been camping. That one. And then I just had a more recent one. Um, but it, it was after the 50 mile world record this last week. Uh, but that was talking about let's run quote of the day with oh yeah it's true i mean he gets to talk about i'm from he gets a legitimate quote and then i get a quote talking about your quote and yeah i don't feel like i've gotten a legitimate uh quote yet but maybe save it for another day on a surprise uh yeah who knows if i pull off western states again maybe that that'll be good timing okay well good luck at western states and this has been very fun also no guarantees hard for everybody out there so yeah patience all right Appreciate, appreciate yeah, appreciate it. your time and thanks for yeah. having me on.